In a 2005 New York Times opinion piece, David Brooks declared that America was in the midst of a moral revival. To put it in old-fashioned terms, Brooks said, America is becoming more virtuous. Americans today hurt each other less than they did 13 years ago. They are more likely to resist selfish and short-sighted impulses. They are leading more responsible, more organized lives. Now, gauging by his more recent contributions, David Brooks has become considerably less optimistic about virtue in our culture. But what's most interesting to me, and the reason why I offer this old quote here, is the bar that Brooks seems to set for virtue. Being less hurtful, having better impulse control, being more responsible, being more organized. I'm not gonna try and dump on David Brooks. I like David Brooks. But when I read something like this, I think about all the people over the course of history whose virtuous deeds have gotten them killed. People like the sixth century philosopher Boethius, whose upright life cost him his home, his possessions, his family, and ultimately his life. Boethius probably was organized and responsible, but it wasn't his organization or his responsibility that got him killed. Boethius got killed because his moral character got in the way of things that powerful people wanted. And the same is true of Socrates and Sir Thomas More and countless others. Organization, impulse control, and responsibility put to the service of the right ends can help you make friends, get promoted at work, round out your investment portfolio, and all sorts of other nice things. Virtue doesn't. Far to the contrary, virtue might make you poorer and less popular, and if you're virtuous enough, it just might get you killed. I say all this because I think that any attempt to describe virtue, and particularly any attempt to argue that a virtuous life is a good thing to pursue, ought to be able to explain what it was that got Socrates and Boethius and Sir Thomas More killed. And this is what I want to do tonight. I want to argue that while things like impulse control have something to do with virtue, the most fundamental hallmark of the virtuous life is a deep and abiding concern for truth. And I want to say something about what I think this means in practice and why it might well make your life harder, shorter, and last but not least, happier. Now, in a talk about virtue, one usually starts off with the discussion of habits and how they are formed and then moves to a description of virtue as a certain kind of good habit. I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach. I'm going to start off by offering a hypothesis about what sets the virtuous person apart from other people. Then I'll turn to the question of how one cultivates virtue. So it goes without saying that virtue, whatever it is, is supposed to make people capable of good actions. The virtuous person, everyone agrees, has a deeply ingrained moral character that enables him to not only see the right action, but to do it easily and with pleasure. But right action is a hard thing to get your head around. What does it even mean to act rightly? What distinguishes the right thing to do from all the other possibilities that confront us? 
Contemporary neo-Aristotelian virtue ethicists, all of whom agree not only that virtue is important, but also that something like Aristotle's account of virtue is correct, have a hard time agreeing on whether or not specific actions are the sort of thing a virtuous person would do. For example, in her frequently anthologized virtue theory and abortion, Rosalind Hursthaus argues that having an abortion is sometimes the virtuous thing to do, that in some instances it exemplifies the virtue of kindness. But other virtue theorists would argue that abortion could never be a virtuous thing to do. And abortion is hardly the only question that generates such disagreement among virtue ethicists. I recently heard an eminent virtue theorist argue, for instance, that the virtue of honesty will sometimes require you to lie. Yet others emphatically maintain the opposite. So this question, the question of what makes an action right or good, is what I want to start with. And I want to appropriate a distinction of Joseph Pieper's that I think is very helpful for thinking through the question of what it means to act rightly. I'll argue that Pieper's distinction is very helpful for explaining what it was that led people like Socrates and Thomas More and Boethius to live and die as they did, and for explaining why others who advocate virtue are really selling something else. With this distinction in place, I will then turn to the more difficult question of how it is that one can become such a person. So in his essay, The Philosophical Act, Joseph Pieper distinguishes what he calls pseudo-philosophy from true philosophy. And he applies the same distinction to art and literature as well. The difference is that pseudo-philosophy tries to put philosophy to the service of its own ends. It starts with its conclusions ready-made and then tries to make philosophy or art or literature deliver them. The pseudo-philosopher already knows at the beginning of his investigation what he wants his result to be and considers philosophy or art or religion or literature or anything else to be valuable only insofar as it serves to exist to advance his pre-existing projects. Pseudo-philosophy, like pseudo-art and pseudo-literature, is the only kind of philosophy allowed by totalitarian regimes. In his The Captive Mind, the Polish poet Czesław Miloz describes what it was like to live under the careful censorship of his communist government. A play could not have a heroic capitalist, lest it somehow imply that capitalism was good. It could not depict any flaws in socialist government. All the heroes had to be socialists. All the villains had to be capitalists. And all philosophy had to argue in favor of Marxism. But as Malos rightly points out, constraints like these destroy philosophy and art and literature. Great philosophy, like great art and great literature, is timeless because it uncovers some enduring truth. It captures the imaginations of diverse readers in diverse times and places precisely because they can recognize the truth it captures. But Malose's communist government was not interested in truth, only in selling its own vision of what truth should be. Rather than allow truth to be pursued and discovered, it, it attempted to dictate what enduring truth was. Pieper argues that real philosophy, by contrast, like real art or li real literature or anything else, 
begins in wonder, in an attitude of humility to the world in which one finds oneself. The true philosopher wants to understand the world, to understand reality. And he wants this whether or not that reality is compatible with those things he already happens to want or those opinions he already happens to have, whether or not that reality serves some predetermined conclusion. This, Pieper proposes, is the difference between the true philosopher and the false philosopher. The true philosopher cares about what is, not about how to bend whatever he encounters to what he wants reality to be. The true philosopher, like the true artist, learns to be humble in the face of what is. Now, Pieper is making this distinction about philosophy in general, not about moral philosophy in particular. But it seems to me that this distinction, the distinction between what it is that true and pseudo-philosophers care about, is very helpful for understanding what sets people, the, the actions of the virtuous man, apart from the rest and also for understanding why that difference can be dangerous. Everyone claims to care about virtue. But very often, what various groups or individuals uphold as virtuous turns out to square rather neatly with whatever it is those groups or individuals already want. An excellent example of this can be found in Nazi and Stalinist and North Korean propaganda films. They differ in interesting ways, but they have this in common they all place heavy emphasis on virtue. It's just that virtue always turns out to mean being blindly devoted to Nazism or Stalinism or Kim Jong-il or whoever. Consider by contrast what we find in the example of Socrates. In his apology, in the context of explaining why he has avoided public office, Socrates describes an event that occurred during his brief stint on the Athenian council. There had been a sea battle in which many Athenian sailors drowned, and those who made it home were put on trial because they had failed to rescue their, fellows, their fellow sailors. In fact, the survivors could not have rescued their comrades. The weather conditions had made it impossible. But people were upset that their loved ones had been lost, and the government knew it could win favor by playing to people's anger, and so the survivors were tried for murder. Socrates, Knowing the sailor's innocence, refused to find them guilty, even though he knew his refusal might lead to his own death. Now, I think that this is an excellent example of what Pieper has in mind when he says that the philosopher cares about what is. If we focus only on what we already happen to want, there are all kinds of arguments for prosecuting innocent men. It gives the people what they want. It helps one's own political party remain in power. Perhaps it keeps some dastardly villain out of power. It might bring peace to the city with peace, prosperity, and the list goes on and on and on. But if we care about what is, about reality, all those things we might happen to want come up short against the actual innocence of those men. Socrates cared about what was really the case, about the truth, even though it was inconvenient even though it interfered with his party's political plans, even though it almost cost him his life. He could not bring himself to ignore the truth. Sir Thomas More, similarly, wanted very much to do his king's bidding, but he could not get past the fact that what he was being asked to swear to 
the invalidity of Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine was false. Boethius, in his turn, was executed because he spoke out when someone he knew to be innocent was accused of treason. In each case, we see the same thing. Socrates and Thomas More and Boethius cared more about what was really the case, about the truth, than about wealth or social status or position, even more than about their own lives. I may be belaboring the point, but I'm going to offer a more modern example because it bugged me. Um, last year, there was a big brouhaha uh, when the publication of Go Tell the Watchman made it clear that Atticus Finch was racist. Um, Atticus Finch was a white man living in the Deep South in the 1930s. Of course, Atticus Finch would have been a racist. Any other depiction would have been a pious fiction. But why does this mean we should now loathe and revile Atticus Finch? A white Southern racist living in a time when everyone affirmed and shared his prejudices went out of his way to defend a black man because he saw that an injustice was being done. That this could happen should inspire our admiration. Someone who cares more about truth than about his own preconceptions or social status or some future outcome he hopes to achieve, that's something rare and wonderful. And this type of concern is, I think, exactly what Pieper is talking about when he says the true philosopher cares about what is. My proposal then is this. The thing that sets right action apart, what makes right action right, is its respect for reality, for what really is the case. I've been appealing to examples of justice and courage, but I think the same account could be given of acts of kindness or temperance or any other virtue. Charlie Weiss, a former Notre Dame football coach, once spoke in an interview about his daughter, who is developmentally delayed. Weiss spoke about how before having a disabled child of his own, he viewed disabled persons with pity and revulsion. His daughter, Weiss said, changed all that because she allowed him to see what he could not or would not see before. That disabled, the disabled are people just like us. We grow in virtue when we learn to look past our opinions and see reality as it is. And this is precisely the quality that makes virtue dangerous. Because respect for what is, for truth, tends very often to be incompatible with what powerful people want. Okay, so I'm gonna leave that as a tentative thesis. And now I'm going to um, offer some thoughts about what it would mean to cultivate this quality. So far I've claimed that right action is truthful action and that it was their recognition of and respect for the truth that set men like Socrates and Boethius apart from other men. If this claim is correct, it at least implies that the ability to recognize and or respect the truth is not the same in all people. In fact, I will argue that it is not. That our ability to recognize truth depends on how well or badly our soul is ordered. And that it is in all cases something that has to be cultivated. It's long been acknowledged that man is set apart from other animals by his ability to reason. But rational though we may be, we are still rational animals. 
We have feelings and fears and desires, all of which can very much affect our reason. If you've ever been on a diet, you may have noticed that you come up with all kinds of good reasons not to stick to your diet when you're in close proximity to your favorite dessert. You might tell yourself, for instance, that you'll diet more successfully if you get to indulge sometimes, or that your host will feel bad if you don't just try a little of the dessert she worked so hard to make. If you've had thoughts like these and given in to them, you've probably also noticed that those reasons never seem like very good reasons the next day when you're standing on the scale. The point is, our desires can affect the way we rationally perceive the world, even or especially even when we don't know that they're doing so. Breaking a diet is an innocuous example, but other examples abound. We can convince ourselves that it is reasonable to stay in a bad relationship, or that it's acceptable to cheat on our taxes. The list goes on. I think it's entirely possible that Henry VIII really did convince himself that his marriage to Catherine was invalid. Even when our desires don't completely overshadow our reason, they can still cause us to ignore or disregard what we know to be true. Even if Henry VIII's desire for an heir led him to believe that his marriage was invalid, it's highly unlikely that everyone who assigned the oath affirming the invalidity of his marriage thought this was the case. It's far more likely that in spite of believing otherwise, they signed the oath because they were afraid of what would befall them if they didn't. Similarly, although we sometimes convince ourselves that breaking our diets is the right thing to do, most of the time we know full well that it isn't. We just break them anyway. What we want takes precedence over what we know. These examples indicate that our desires can either skew our perception of reality altogether or at least cause us to ignore what we know to be the case. But reason and desire don't have to be at odds in that way. Aristotle held that reason has what he called political rule over the passions. Our passions are not rational, but they can nonetheless participate in reason. Reason cannot completely control our passions, but it can entreat and convince and guide them. In a disordered soul, passions either control or overshadow reason. The rational part of us is at the mercy of the non-rational part. But in a well-ordered soul, the passions are guided and influenced by the highest part, reason. Rather than distorting one's perception of reality, everything in the well-ordered soul works towards the accurate perception of reality. If we can all think of examples where our passions have distorted our perception or caused us to act against our better judgment, I think we all also know people who don't seem to struggle with their desires in this way. We all know people who are not just healthy, but who seem not to struggle to remain so. People who not only drink moderately, but who would not enjoy themselves if they drank immoderately. Or people who st not only stick to an exercise routine, but who derive great satisfaction from doing so. And we've all seen individuals who have performed some great act of heroism insist that they did nothing more than anyone would have done, that they couldn't have acted in any other way. Chances are they really mean this. We, the less brave, could have acted in lots of other ways, but the truly brave feel compelled to act as they do. 
The story has it that when Boethius heard his fellow consul, who he knew to be innocent, accused of treason, he leapt to his feet and angrily denounced the charge in front of the entire assembly. Rather than distorting his perception of reality or holding him back, Boethius's very passion supported his apprehension of the truth. What we see in cases like these is a harmony of reason and desire. The temperate person accurately assesses how much it is appropriate to eat or drink or exercise, and that is precisely what the temperate person wants to do. The courageous person accurately sees that someone needs saving or that someone's honor needs defending, and that is what the courageous person wants to do. There is no struggle, no self-deception, simply the unified action of a unified self. So I've been arguing that people who we think of as virtuous share a common feature. They not only accurately perceive reality, but care more about being true to what is than anything else. I've also argued that in order to be such a person, one needs to have a well-ordered soul. Disordered passions lead to a disregard for truth, and perhaps even to an inability to see it. But if all of this is correct, and if it is indeed good and desirable to be this sort of person, then the important question is how we can become such a person. The first point worth making is that this is a process that everyone has to undergo. No one is simply born virtuous with their desires and reason in perfect harmony. Even in small children, we see some who are naturally aggressive and others who are naturally timid. But we could hardly describe those tendencies as rational or as in harmony with reason. Children need to learn to have the appropriate, i.e. the rational amounts of fear and daring. And this is something that happens by habituation. I'm assuming that everybody in this room at some time or another overcame a fear. I will go out on a limb and say that if we successfully overcame that fear, we did so by facing it. We made ourselves take a public speaking class or scale gradually larger heights or we checked under our beds for monsters or whatever. The way we train our passions to be in harmony with our reason is by doing what reason requires, regardless or in spite of our passions. Parents typically have a lot to do with this process. They insist that we be considerate of the feelings of others, even though we don't particularly want to, or that we invite less popular children to our birthday parties, and so on. If their efforts are successful, we eventually come to see the value of such actions for ourselves. We come to have rightly ordered passions by deliberately choosing to act in the ways that a person with rightly ordered passions would act. When we do this enough, we find that our desires resist reason less and become more and more compatible with it. So, if we already know what we ought to do, we can become virtuous by making ourselves do it. Or if the people in charge of our upbringing know what we ought to do, they can help us become virtuous by helping us to understand the goodness of those actions. But precisely because our passions can distort our perception of reality, there's always a strong likelihood that we don't have an accurate perception of what we ought to do. And Aristotle has some helpful insights about such cases. Aristotle's first insight is that the virtuous action in any situation will always lie in a mean between two extremes. His idea is that in any situation in which we find ourselves, 
there will be two extreme responses, both of which would be indicative of disordered passions. The virtuous action, the action indicative of a right order between reason and passion, will lie between those two extremes. In any dangerous situation, for instance, there will be both an excessively fearful or cowardly response and an insufficiently fearful or reckless one. If I see my neighbor being mugged in the alleyway and I'm too afraid to intervene, I'm a coward. I'm controlled by my fear. But if I rush in, heedless of my own and my neighbor's safety, I am reckless. I have too little fear. The virtuous action, says Aristotle, will be found somewhere in between those two extremes. Just where between the two extremes the virtuous action will be found, though, will depend on the person in question. What would be cowardly in a Navy SEAL might be brave or even reckless in a little old lady. Now, I think most of us can easily concede the truth of this insight. We can make a start at the right relationship between reason and passion by avoiding extremes. But true as this insight might be, it can also seem spectacularly unhelpful, particularly when coupled with the additional claim that the mean is different for each person. If we don't already know what the virtuous mean is, merely avoiding extremes isn't going to be much help in finding it. But Aristotle has some further advice which is helpful. First, Aristotle advises that we err on the side of what we're less inclined to do. For instance, if I already tend to overindulge myself at parties, I will probably also have an inaccurate perception even of what a moderate amount to drink would be. It might seem to me that I would be acting temperately if I consumed only seven drinks instead of my usual 10. But if I know that I am not particularly temperate, I should also know that my perception of what is moderate is probably skewed. So I'm more likely to hit the mark if I err on the side of what I least want to do. I will be more likely to hit the mean if I stop at, say, four drinks. Similarly, if I have anger problems, I probably also have an inaccurate perception of what a reasonable response would be. I might think that I am exhibiting an appropriate amount of anger if I merely scream and shout at my spouse instead of also bashing out his headlights. But if I know that I have anger problems, I should also know that my passions have most likely skewed my perception of the reasonable response. So I'm more likely to hit the mean if I respond in a way that seems to me to be excessively mild. Compensating for our disordered passions in these ways can help us to retrain them. Aristotle's other insight is that if we want to be virtuous, we should find a virtuous person to imitate. Most of us, even if we are not ourselves virtuous, can recognize virtue when we see it. We don't have to be particularly honest or kind or brave to recognize honesty or kindness or bravery in others. And if we can recognize those qualities, we can also imitate them. We can try to act as people who we know to be virtuous would act. And if we think about the moral growth that has occurred in our own lives, there's a good chance that it occurred because someone we admired modeled the right sort of action for us. Okay, so, so far I've argued that the hallmark of a virtuous person is his accurate perception and respect for reality. I've also argued that an accurate perception of reality presupposes a well-ordered soul, a right relationship between reason and passion. 
And I've said a bit about how that relationship can be cultivated. It's also reasonable to ask, though, why such a rightly ordered soul is even desirable in the first place. Why is it better to be Boethius and be imprisoned and killed for defending the truth? Why wouldn't it be better to be his false accuser and not only stay alive but profit? Why is it better to beat Thomas More than Henry VIII? Even if history's villains had disordered passions, it sure seems like they got what they wanted. Plato held that being ruled by one's passions is a kind of slavery. I think there is a great deal of truth to this insight. Think about someone like Ebenezer Scrooge. It's obvious to an outside observer that Ebenezer Scrooge has a miserable life. He's cold all the time because coal costs money. He subsists on gruel because everything better costs money. He spends all his time working at a boring job so he can make money. His lust for money drove away the woman he loved, isolated his relatives. It dictates everything that Scrooge does. And consequently, there's a very real sense in which Scrooge isn't free. He's a slave to money, just as others are enslaved to drugs or alcohol. A willing slave, to be sure, but a slave nonetheless. Henry VIII may have been king of England, but he seems to been, have been as unhappy as Ebenezer Scrooge. His excesses with food and drink left him crippled with gout, and his obsession with air led him to divorce and even kill several of his wives. Thomas More may have lost his life, but surely he was freer at the end of the day than Henry was. You exhibit a great deal more freedom when you lose your life acting as you know you ought than you do when you keep your life because you're too afraid of losing it. If it is slavery to be ruled by our passions, why is it freedom to single-mindedly devote ourselves to the pursuit of truth? Because, or so many philosophers have held, this is what we as human beings are made for and the only thing that fulfills us. At the beginning of his metaphysics, Aristotle says, all men by nature desire to know. In his Apology, Socrates says something similar, namely that the unexamined life is not worth living. To be human is to desire to understand reality and our place in it. And the closer we come to achieving that understanding, the more fulfilled we will be. We can frustrate that desire or suppress it or try to ignore it altogether, but to the extent we do so, we deny our own humanity. Only through the pursuit of truth in all its forms, including the life of virtue, can we satisfy that desire. While Boethius was awaiting execution, he wrote a small book that we still study today, The Consolation of Philosophy. In that book, Boethius asks whether his way of life has been a huge mistake. He pursued truth and tried to live a virtuous life. He raised virtuous sons. He treated other people justly. Yet it resulted in the triumph of his enemies and the loss of everything he loved. But Boethius eventually realizes that all the things he lost, money, power, position, even those earthly goods we rightly cherish, like family and friends, were of their nature transitory and that they were never really his to begin with. We should count ourselves blessed if we have such goods, but we cannot make them stay. 
true goods, the kind of goods one gains when one devotes oneself to the life of virtue, are a kind of good that no thief can steal. Alone, imprisoned, and awaiting death, Boethius's consolation is this. His enemies have not won, because the good that really matters is not a good that an enemy can take away. The men who killed Boethius are now little more than a footnote in history books. We barely know their names. But we still read and reread the consolation of philosophy. And this is in itself, I think, an indication that Boethius was rightly consoled. Thank you. We have uh, plenty of time to take some questions. There's a reception afterwards, but we'll take questions for some, some minutes. What in your mind would distinguish, I guess, a rightful reality versus a reality that does not evince truth? Because I don't think reality is necessarily synonymous with truth. Like, for example, Auschwitz. I mean, the reality was horrible, but it was completely militating against truth. Maybe it's just a semantic differentiation, but I'm curious to know your thoughts. If it makes sense. Okay, well, you should correct me if I'm not answering your question, because that can sometimes happen. But um, there's perhaps a distinction that um, I should have made and is worth making, um, which is between the reality that one tries to impose on the world and um, the reality that is actually there. Now, it seems like so with something like Auschwitz, both of those things are true, right? Auschwitz is the brainchild of somebody who's trying to bend the world to his purpose and um, commit genocide and make one race superior to another, right? So um, Auschwitz is an attempt of somebody to impose their vision of what the world should be, right? Um, at the same time, <laughs> Auschwitz happened, right? And if we were to try to deny that it happened or undercut that it happened in some way or, or diminish it to serve some end, we would be denying that reality. So when I say that we, when I say that we have to be true to what is, I'm, I'm, or when I'm stealing this from Peeper, so when um, Peeper says it, yeah, I know, right? It's, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Um, I guess the main, the main point I want to make is that I think that there is a very real temptation when we have a very good and laudable goal to try and bend what actually happened so that it serves that purpose. I was watching a documentary the other night about um, Kitty Genevieve, Genevieve, the woman who was killed in New York while supposedly 37 people watched the whole event and did nothing. Reported in the New York Times, books about it, article, philosophy articles about it, won all kinds of prizes. Well, it turns out that that actually never really happened. Uh, there were 37 people who heard or saw something, but neither, none of them ever heard or saw enough to be concerned about it. Um, and the one person who actually did see something going on did try to intervene. This is a story made up by the New York Times, or, and it's not, it's not true. 
And they interviewed, um, Kitty Genovese's brother interviewed the, the editor at the New York Times and said, why did you say all of this stuff? It wasn't true. And the editor said, but think of all the people it influenced. Think of all the books that have been written about this. But it wasn't true, right? So my point is that we have to, um, real virtue, the real pursuit of virtue has to be concerned with what actually is the case. So that's a long answer, and I don't know if it responded to your point. Sure, we'll talk back and forth okay. a lot. Yeah. lecture, Father Fields talked about the human person has made in the image of God and defined by logos, and that by having an adequate philosophical theology, which holds that God has provided for us a moral law that we can access by reason, um, then we can live in the light of truth. Do you think we need an adequate philosophical theology, um, or we need to emphasize that in order to secure or um, sustain belief in the truth of beings that would um, determine our engagement uh, morally and virtuously in the world? Um, yes. <laughs> um, no, that's, um, that, I'm not being sarcastic. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. But I think that that part of the pursuit of truth is the pursuit of the question of what made us? Why are we here? In the in the you know, um, I was trained in an old school tradition that believes that reason can prove the existence of God. Right? That, that if we pursue, um, if we that simply by pursuing truth, we can at least come to the knowledge that there is a first cause. Um, so I certainly think that uh, belief in God or I certainly think that pursuit of knowledge about God and God's order in the world is very much a part of the pursuit of truth and part of the pursuit of virtue. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there, and if you maybe you have more questions, I'm not sure. Well, yes, very good. May I interject and just ask, Katie, what about what, what do you do with the truthful atheist? Who is the the Socratic atheist? Well, here's the thing, and this is so. This is the more I was going to say. Um, what I don't think one ought to do, and what I appreciate about the philosophical training I received, what I don't think one ought to do is simply say, "Okay, here are the five answers. That's now go and live your life." You're not being a philosopher if you say that, right? If you're really going to pursue knowledge about God, you have to, with intellectual honesty, examine arguments against God's existence. I think there is a lot of good in the truthful. The truthful atheist is seeking for the truth, every bit as much as we are. And um, we can't just try and circumvent the whole process of pursuing truth and content ourselves with imposing answers. That's not philosophical, and it's not part it's not part of our human fulfillment. We attain human fulfillment by trying to understand the world, and that means trying to understand whether God exists. And at some stage in that attempt to understand, you might go through a phase where you doubt it. But if you're confident in truth, uh, you should also be confident that the truth will prevail. 
you choose your questions. There's a lot of hands up. I don't know who to choose. You choose. <laughs> <laughs> much. Um, um, I have a question. You mentioned sort of towards the beginning of your talk that, you know, character can be found if we have self-control or we're responsible or we're organized, but the, the primary feature is the search for truth. Those things that you mentioned in the beginning, are those ways of valuing truth? Or Here's my problem. Um, so I certainly think that self, look, you don't have a well-ordered soul if you don't have self-control. Right? I mean, if, you're, if, if passions aren't subordinate to reason, you're not going to be well-ordered. My point is that having, um, being organized and responsible and, all the, and having control of your passions, Eichmann was organized and responsible and in control of his passions. Right? It's, it's not enough. <laughs> you, can, you can attain a certain degree of control over your passions and still be utterly blind. To, to truthfulness. And I think when we set the bar that low, we imply that virtue is something that middle class people have. You know, it's, it's a sort of thing that, um, you know, we, uh, virtue is paying your bills on time and showing up to meetings and stuff like that. And I just think that that's, com that's a completely inadequate conception of virtue because it's completely compatible with being a terrible person. Jumping off of that, uh, you mentioned a pious fiction mm -hmm. and how that's not true. And I think kind of what you were just saying, it's like this fear of acting against virtue that actually causes you to not be virtuous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, especially as a Catholic, um, but as a religious person, there are all these preset thoughts about what you should be doing, what you should not be doing. And it is, do you think that it's those rules that tend to almost lead you away from being a true philosopher? Like that preset thought, well, I can't do this, or I, I can't, you know, that's not, that's too extreme. Like you said you had to find a means. I think it can be a lack of faith in some instances in what you believe that causes you to adhere too blindly to rules. Um, if we, I mean, I, um, I don't know why I'm telling these personal stories, but um, I don't know if any of you saw that the movie Million Dollar Baby when it came out. Um, I had a big argument with my dad, who hadn't seen the movie, and I had seen the movie. Um, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of euthanasia, right? But I thought that movie was very powerful um, because I thought it accurately captured a lot of realities about the love between two people and about how people feel when they're paralyzed and about how they feel when other people have to take care of them and the tragedy of removing yourself from someone's life because you think you're a burden when they, you're, they want nothing more than for you to be that burden for them. There, I thought that there was a lot of truth there. And I think if we're too quick to say, to jump to the end and say, wait a minute, this is probably saying that X is good or bad, we miss the point. Right? Whatever our view about abortion or euthanasia or anything else is, it has to pay attention to the way life is. Right? We can't just say, oh, well, that hardly ever happens, so we don't have to pay attention to it. 
it's still wrong the end, right? We have to pay attention to the way the world is or we're not being truthful. Um, so yeah, I think it can be, it can be a way of, it, of an extreme, right? It can just be a fear of facing something that seems to contradict what you believe. And I think we can't be afraid of it. We have to be confident that if what we believe is true, we'll see the truth even when we examine the dirty facts. Let's take, let's take two more questions. Uh, so since our modern world does not want to accept reality and uh, because we accept that, you know, they're multicultural, multi-religious, so you, we all come from different concepts of what reality is and people are, you know, come from a relativistic perspective. When we talk about virtue and truth, and we know what that is, and that, that there is an objective truth, how, how do you even bring people to see that there's an objective truth when they've bought into the idea that there isn't a truth, one truth, to begin with, and that whatever they believe, and if they can defend it, or because it's their perspective, that that is true in and of itself? I think that the way that we engage other people is by, not by agreeing with them, not by saying their views are true, but by respecting their views. Um, you know, I, I teach contemporary moral issues, and um, one thing that I realized very early on is that your students might not agree with you, and they might not have, they might not be very good at sorting through all the logical steps in an argument, but they know when they're being patronized. They know when their views aren't being taken seriously. And when people have views that differ from ours, there's always something true there, right? There's always something. It's, I'm not saying their views are true, but there's something true. And, the, and whatever is true there, I think we need to respect. And we need to respect the person who holds that view. Um, you know, if somebody, um, whatever you're arguing about, chances are they've been through something in their life that really profoundly affected them deeply. And we rush to the end and, and just try and convince them of what we already think and don't take the time to understand why they think what they think, then I think we're not going to have a good conversation. So that's what I would say to that. We'll take this last question back in the corner. I wanted to ask about situations where people have incomplete information. So if, uh, if virtue is being true to what is, and uh, if an individual's ability to know what is is based on the information that they uh, have given them, is it possible for a person to make a virtuous choice when all of the information that either they have collected themselves or which has been provided to them the evidence of their own senses uh, or the testimony of other people is wrong and that uh, they do not have an accurate sense of what is objectively true. Can, can they make a virtuous choice under those circumstances? Um, so I was, I was kind of waiting for this question because, um, well, actually I was waiting for somebody to point out to me that Thomas More did very nasty things. <laughs> but... Um, Look, I don't, I mean, one, one thing that never comes through in Aristotle's account of virtue, in this life, we're never going to be completely virtuous. We're never going to be in full possession. I mean, the, the goal is to grow in virtue and have a more and more accurate perception of reality. 
Um, if we look back to, you know, many of our grandparents or great-grandparents in this room who we respect and admire and think of as very good people had crazy views about race, um, about lots of other things. Um, were they fully virtuous? Could they have been fully virtuous with those distorted views? No. Could they have gotten lots of things right with some nonetheless distorted views about things? Yeah, I think so. I think, and that's why I use the example of Atticus Finch. I mean, here's somebody who clearly has distorted and incorrect views. But he also clearly, even before he defended um, Jim in the trial, he was clearly a pretty good man, right? In spite of um, not, not everything he did relied on the false premises that he had. Um, and so, yeah, I think that you can make a lot of progress towards virtue while having distorted views, but the progress that you make has to be, has to occur because you get something right. I think that um, all of us with distorted views, if we make progress in virtue, it's because we are at least open to hearing the truth. And when we do make progress, it's because we do arrive at some form at, at the truth. I think we would all agree here that Professor Angela Knobel does not have entirely distorted views and uh, has done a masterful job of presenting to us a robust uh, talk on a, a difficult topic. Thank you very much, and please join us. Help me thank her, and also please join us afterwards for the reception outside.